Hey everyone, it's Chad, CEO of mission.org. And on today's episode, we're gonna talk about the origins of NetSuite. If you're not familiar with NetSuite, you should be. They're a huge cloud computing company that provides software and services to manage business finances, operations, and customer relations. And to talk about it at length, we decided to bring on the founder, Evan Goldberg. Perfect person to talk to, right? So the mission at NetSuite is to deliver one system in the cloud that allows businesses to grow. It's a big challenge. They also have a social impact program at NetSuite that helps thousands of nonprofits and social enterprises. In today's episode, we talk with Evan about his story, about growing up in Massachusetts, when he moved out to Silicon Valley in the 1980s to work for Oracle. We talk about a lot of lessons learned there from Larry Ellison, Mark Benioff, as well as Mark Hurd. So tune in. You're not going to be disappointed. This is a great episode. And let's jump into it. Let's take a quick time out to thank Trinet for sponsoring independent media like Mission Daily. Hey, I know running a business isn't easy. One of the biggest challenges is HR with all its details and regulations. So I chose Trinet. Their experts make everything from payroll to benefits and even compliance really easy. And they offer full service solutions tailored to your industry and your company, whether your team is 10 people or a thousand. For me, that means less worry and more confidence that it's taken care of the right way. You and your employees deserve the same. Check out Trinet for your HR needs today. Evan, thanks for joining us. We were chatting a little bit before we got on mic about the history of Silicon Valley, your experience, and where the industry is heading at large. So hopefully in the course of the interview, we can get back to that. But where I want to start with your story is at the beginning. So could you tell us a little bit about where you grew up and where you're from? Sure. I grew up in Lexington, Massachusetts, near Boston. And I went to school in Boston and came out here in the 1980s, believe it or not, and went to work for Oracle and kind of got to pursue what was my lifelong dream of building software. I always pretty much from day one that I started using a computer, figured out that this is what I wanted to do. Very cool. And when you first got out to the Valley, it's the 80s, Oracle is booming, growing fast at the time. It's probably like the company to work for at the time. So what was that process like and how did you land that job? Well, that's actually an interesting story. So, you know, I could kind of see the writing on the wall that the center of gravity for what I wanted to do, right? Software was moving from the East Coast to the West Coast. And I was a huge Apple fan and I thought maybe I'd go work for Apple because they obviously do software and hardware. My sister worked for Fidelity in Boston and, you know, that wasn't necessarily a great time to go work for Apple for a variety of reasons. And she said, but if you really want to go to the West Coast, I am investing in this company called Oracle because she was running like Fidelity's software mutual fund and she was, you know, buying Oracle like it was going out of style. And she said, this guy, Larry Ellison, he's a pioneer in this world of databases, which I knew absolutely nothing about. And so I, you know, on a flyer, went and visited Oracle, came out. I was in California for the first time since I'd been a kid. And it was February and it was green and 70 degrees. (laughs) And I'm like, do I have to go back? So, yeah, so that, and, you know, I came out with a lot of people from college because Oracle had decided they wanted to just, you know, populate their company with college grads. And, you know, that was a great group. It's kind of like, a class of, it was actually called class of. So it was a really fun way to get introduced, especially since I didn't really know anybody out here. And all of a sudden I had these friends. So it had a great kind of 
work culture. And I'm still super close with a lot of those people that came out from the East Coast at the same time as I did. So when I came out from the East Coast, it was a bit of a culture shock in a great way. So I'd found the conversation topics and scope of interest in DC pretty narrow compared to what I found out here. Oh yeah, well you should have been in Boston. (laughs) I mean, then you would have really gotten the shock of the century. I believe it. So what was that like for you and how did you get acclimated? You had that class and- uh, Yeah, well, yeah, I didn't have really any family out here or anything. So that, you know, that's where it, it kind of centered around my friends at Oracle and then friends I made through other things that I did out here. But the main thing for me was Boston at the time seemed really insular. Mm-hmm. And, you know, California was much more open, certainly more sort of multicultural and, you know, just a melting pot, like really a melting pot. To me, it seemed like the essence of America as a true melting pot. In Boston, it's kind of like, yeah, you had these neighborhoods and and groups that, you know, kind of didn't really talk to each other that much. And when they did, it wasn't necessarily great. I mean, obviously that city's changed massively. But I had a, just a negative reaction to that kind of siloed world. And California was definitely much more my speed. Very cool. And when you're at Oracle and you're seeing what's going on and Ellison's running the company, I'm curious, what are some big takeaways that you learned at Oracle during your time working there? Yeah, well, the biggest thing was that Larry's passion for what they did. He was a very, and remains a very compelling figure, very passionate about technology and, and how it can you know, improve the lives of the people that use it. And he's always pushing the envelope and he was very inspirational. So certainly he would just walk around. He'd manage by walking around to a large degree. I mean, you'd see, a, you know, there were probably only a thousand people at Oracle then. And most of them were, you know, in Belmont, which is where we were. And, uh, you know, just getting to see him walking the halls and, and he'd stop and chat and, you know, he'd drop a word or two. I was deciding I was working in the core database team, which was you know, prestigious place to work, but I didn't feel sort of what I was doing was close enough to the user. And at the time, Mark Benioff had started the Mac group at Oracle. So trying to take Oracle software and make it sort of more accessible using, you know, the Mac, the great Mac UI. And I was deciding which way I wanted to do. And Larry passed me in the hall and said, you know, if I was starting out in my career, I'd go work in the Mac group also. And it was like, you know, getting it anointed with holy oil. (laughs) So, I mean, I just, I mean, staying connected, and staying connected to the history of the company, that's what I've seen through the course of Oracle is so much comes back to the company's origins and they still remain true to so many of the, so much of the vision that they had back then. And that's certainly what I've tried to do at NetSuite. So after, before we get into NetSuite, after Oracle, I think you had a startup around yeah. three years and yeah. where you really cut your teeth maybe on Silicon Valley and what everything means right. in entrepreneurship. Right. It was my um, mandatory Silicon Valley <laughs> failure. I love it. Check the box. Yeah. Would you mind uh, sharing a little bit? No, not at all. In 1995, the internet was exploding. I really wanted to be part of it. I felt like I'd learned a ton at Oracle and that was my dream. It was always my dream to have my own software company and be building software that people loved. And that's what we did. We built technology for enhancing websites with animation and interactivity, something like Flash. In fact, our competitor was a company called Future Splash, which was bought by Macromedia to create Flash. That sort of was the you know nail in the coffin for us. They had the connection, Macromedia had the connection, all the sort of developers that we were trying to reach. But we did have an incredibly loyal following. I loved what we built, but we couldn't make it you know viable as an ongoing concern. But I did learn a ton about you know running a small company, and that was really the um, I guess the ashes on which I <laughs> built the idea of NetSuite. 
And so you take the ashes, you take the detritus, maybe, sorry if that's yeah, too harsh, yeah. that's, that's left, <laughs> all of those experiences, the pain, obviously. And uh, I heard you had around like a five minute conversation with Larry. Yeah, that helped. yeah. so he helped me out on the first company, but sort of in the background, it wasn't necessarily up his alley, but he invests, you know, in people. And that's another thing I've certainly learned from him. So that's the most important ingredient by far. Uh, and so I got on the phone with him. He would call me every once in a while and say, how's your graphic stuff going? That's what he called it. <laughs> and I said, well, not great. We're kind of having, you know, our lunch is being eaten by Macromedia and I don't think we're going to be able to make it, but I have learned a ton about running a business and I'd like to shift gears and shift to business software because there aren't really good systems. We have all these systems and it's a mess. And, you know, in my mind, I thought big companies had these great systems as I've learned, not necessarily, right. but that was sort of my idea. Um, you know, Oracle had good systems to run internally. It was running a lot of its own stuff. So I said, well, I want to build something like those systems that are for big companies, but for small companies. And he said, oh, that's perfect. If I were to do a startup right now, it's very similar to what he said when he uh, said I should go to the Mac group. He said, well, if I were doing a startup right now, I would build accounting for the web, you know, something like QuickBooks, but delivered as a web application. I said, hmm, accounting. Well, I was kind of thinking sales, you know, because I want to learn about my pipeline. Where is my next deal coming from? You know, what do I need to do to close the deal? And he said, oh, yeah, we'll do the front office stuff. But first, you know, this company's already done in his head. Um, but first, we got to do the back office stuff because the accounting, that's like where all your customers, your products that you sell, your employees, it's all there. And we'll have to build, you know, front office stuff. We'll have to build a web store, he said, because a lot of these companies are going to sell on the web. So the most important thing is it's got to be a web application. I don't remember the exact terminology used. It should run on the internet. People don't, you know, these companies can't manage databases. I thought that showed some self-awareness that he knew that his software was um, not the easiest to use. So they don't want to run databases. So, you know, we need to run it for them. So I think that, you know, it was really was a five minute phone conversation. And I shifted, you know, the founders of the first company shifted gears. We were up in San Francisco, you know, in, what was called back then multimedia gulch. I'm really aging myself now. This is in the mid nineties. Um, we were right next to AT&T. Yeah. AT&T park was going up right as it was called or Pacific bell park. Now Oracle park was going up right in front of our eyes. So, and you know, I was living in the city, but that year in 1998, I got married. I had my first child and we started what was called net ledger at the time, which became renamed it to NetSuite when we realized, well, maybe we should name it based on the idea of the company um, <laughs> rather than our first product. And, you know, all of a sudden I was down in, in Menlo park, living in Menlo park and, and programming accounting software. I didn't know anything about account. I'd used QuickBooks, but on the first day, the co-founders had to go out. We bought like four copies of an accounting textbook. So we'd learn how this stuff works. Fortunately, I later got a product manager that actually knew about accounting. But, you know, a couple months later, Larry calls us. So how's it going? You're now you're living down in the peninsula and programming accounting software. Not you're not in the city anymore. What's it like? I mean, it's probably not that different. I'm like, yeah, it's programming, you know, to some degree programming is programming. But uh, yeah, it was a radical. That was maybe more culture shock than coming and living out in California. All of a sudden I was programming business software. And but the cool thing was that a few months later, we got enough of it working to actually use it ourselves. So we started the company, you know, in terms of just dealing with our expenses and our checking account, and everything on QuickBooks. But as soon as we had something up and running, of course, we wanted to eat our own dog food. So we loaded our QuickBooks file into our system. And, you know, I taken it on faith that 
you know, Larry was really the passionate one. I was the passionate one about the suite that should be one application and you, there should be one dashboard. You should be able to go to one place and see everything about your business. That was sort of my passion. And he, you know, believed in that also, but his passion was this should run as a web application. And he told me early on, he said, you know, first we had like mainframes and then we had client server. Well, now we have these web applications and this is how people are going to run business applications for the next thousand years. I don't know what's going to happen after that, but definitely for the next <laughs> thousand years. So he was a huge believer in it. I didn't really know yet. And in fact, I'd gone to a, a party at Larry's house where Steve Jobs was there. This was my, sort of my one and only direct encounter with Steve Jobs, who, you know, I worshiped like everybody else. I was at Apple. My first computer was an Apple II. And I, you know, I came out thinking I was going to go work for, I loved Apple. I went to the Mac group. I, and, um, and he said to me, he said, yeah, Larry seems, you know, really excited about this thing where you do accounting in a browser. But does anyone want to do accounting in a browser? <laughs> and I was like, I don't actually know, but Larry seems sure. So I'm going with it. But it was seriously only a couple of weeks later that we actually, that I actually pulled up our company's information at my house on a web browser. And I was like, oh, oh whoa, this is going to work. <laughs> I mean, it was then it was obvious that the ability to have anytime, anywhere access to the critical information about your business was that was going to sell. Very cool. And when you're getting the company started, I'm curious, do you do a friends and family round? Did you raise money? Are you bootstrapping? Are no, you? We had one. Initially, we had one VC. <laughs> that was Larry. And we did eventually attract another VC to actually join with Larry. And I had an incredible relationship. It was actually a VC firm out of New York. It was one of the biggest, most successful women owned. It was four partners, three were women. And one of those women, Debbie Farrington, became you know, this, this is like a year into the company. She joined the company and became a board member, an incredible contributor to the company. So that was an, I had an amazing experience with that. It was really nice to supplement, you know, Larry's input with a seasoned, you know, VC who really, you know, was the right type, I guess you might say, that really believed in the long-term vision of the company and supported the company through sort of thick and thin. Because we did go through two meltdowns, you know, so we have that, you know, those scars of both the financial meltdown in 2008, but also the uh, dot-com bubble burst in 2000. So we weathered both of those storms. So take us back briefly to the hair salon when you're getting, yeah. so you're above the hair yeah, salon, yeah. early offices, you're getting things going. Uh, what were those early days like as you're starting, you know, you're going from NetLedger to NetSuite yeah, and you're, they, you're they seeing this works for us. Oh my God, it was great. We had, you know, similar to Embed Software, which was the first company I did, we attracted an early group of passionate early adopters that really believed in it. And they were like small companies that were run out of their house, and but they had people scattered around and that they, everyone could be playing off the same playbook. They, you know, they believed in the vision and they were sort of visionary customers. And we were, you know, flying by the seat of our pants. You know, the only other business software company to deliver in the cloud, of course, it wasn't called that, called various things, application service providers. But the only other one really that we knew of was salesforce.com. As my friend Mark Benioff started three months after we did, he came up to me because I really wanted to do sales software. That was what my passion was. And, you know, I talked to about that about with him and Larry and he came up and he said, well, we're going to do something like sort of Siebel, you know, but on the web. And he said, well, we're, I'm going to start my own internet company. I was like, oh, that's a great idea. I think that might work out for you. And so we, you know, both, I think both companies, certainly we were flying by the seat of our pants. We had to do an upgrade from net ledger version one to version 1.1 or something like that. And it went awry and we were up all night 
till like nine in the morning. And then one of my uh, key technologists was like, okay, I'm never doing that again. And, and he totally rewrote how we stored the multi-tenant data. He wrote kind of the, the whole multi-tenancy model that we've used, you know, for 20 years based on our all-nighter that we pulled. I mean, it was a super fun time. I, as I said, 1998 was the year that my first child was born, my daughter. I kind of got to see her grow up. So she was, you know, a toddler and my wife was bringing her in the wagon to the office and bringing sandwiches for everybody. And it was, you know, and the hair salon was playing super loud music below us. And my co-founder <laughs> would sit there banging a broom on the floor to try to get them to turn it down. And, you know, it was an amazing time. And we did, we did feel, especially after we saw it running for ourselves, we really felt like we were on the, the leading edge of a huge, huge wave. And that definitely animated and motivated us. So you're starting to see the wave, you're running it for yourself. Where was the first large customer you closed and landed where you're like, okay, this is going to expand to in the B2B world fast? You know, we had a few customers that were visionaries. We had a company that handled farms, like the accounting for farms throughout California. And it was pretty big. And that was, you know, really, it was a lot larger than our other customers. And, you know, one of the things is, you, and this is true for all companies, especially especially in B2B software, maybe not so much in B2C, but in B2B software, you inevitably will attract some large customers that pay you a bunch more. And that's where you get to see whether you're going to stick to your vision or not, because they can definitely get you off on a tangent. For example, when we, you know, there were companies that said, well, we really would like to have the data at our data center. Can you host it at our data center? But that was really contrary to our whole vision of uh, hosting it for them and get, taking it off their premises. We didn't do that, even though there was significant money involved. And we stayed focused to our vision of serving, you know, the massive companies that don't want their data. Now they, they think it's crazy that they had their data. I mean, back then we'd have to convince them that we could store it more securely than they could. Like, do you really know where your data is? And is it possible that someone could just, you know, put a, back then it would probably be like a, disc or something, not even, a, I don't know if we had USB then, and just take your entire customer list as they left the company. And when they think about it, they'd say, oh yeah, maybe it's not that great how we're securing it right now. But we had to have that discussion. Now it's obviously the opposite. Any company that comes along and says, we want you to store your data, people look at them kind of cross-eyed, but you know, staying true to, to your vision. And, and even when those larger customers come along, certainly they're helpful and they obviously help drive investment. You can reinvest you know, those revenues into growing the company, but how do you manage just to service them, but still stay true to your vision? That's one of the big challenges I think companies have as they grow, especially in B2B. Yeah. I think that's probably the largest challenge in B2B because it's so tempting when you're, you get yeah. a large contract or you're looking at it and, you know, you feel an obligation to service the client, do good yeah. by them. But at the same time, you know, as a subject matter expert, you have way more sets of data that you're working with. And like, you see that vision, you see that focus. Hey, let's take a quick time out to thank Trinet for sponsoring independent media like Mission Daily. When you're growing your business, you'll need to solve all kinds of HR challenges and you'll need Trinet. Trinet gives you expert advice on HR compliance, attracting top talent, and how to efficiently outsource your HR. Get started now by checking out Trinet's free e-guides at trinet.com slash e-guide to learn more about how to tackle these issues today. Now, let's jump back into today's episode. Any tips on maybe 
articulating that and, you know, getting aligned with a large client and moving forward so you can stay true yeah, to your well, focus? The, the, it starts with making sure that you choose the right, right. large client. And that's, you know, you're going to have salespeople chomping at the bit and you're going to have technical people saying, we can't do that. That's way off our technology target. And that's, you know, then it really just, it comes down to the entrepreneur and, and the CEO to make that decision. There really is nobody else that can make that decision. And I think it's a judgment call. So make a good choice on whether to, you know, sign somebody up like that and then really manage it. But the most important thing is that you have clear expectations on both sides that you're able to tell that large customer, but here's what we're going to be able to do. And here's what we're not going to be able to do. And that's incredibly hard. And obviously the salesperson is typically not going to do that. And again, that's where the CEO has to come in and get and have a meeting of the minds with the principal, with the decision maker on the other side uh, to have clear expectations. That's the best you sort of. Definitely. So NetSuite's growing. I'm curious, what are some other mistakes maybe that you made along the way in the early days of NetSuite? where you course corrected, but maybe they set you back a little bit or there are things you just won't forget now. Yeah. And you make a lot of mistakes and obviously the key is to just learn from them. They are inevitable. I think, you know, sometimes you can learn by very negative things that happen to your company. And in the case of the financial meltdown in 2008, I mean, this is, you know, 10 years into the history of the company, but the pace of business expansion slowed, obviously, markedly less businesses being created. Businesses were not investing as much. They were just kind of trying to hunker down. So, you know, that year we saw, I think 2009, we saw like 9% growth, whereas we'd had 30, 40% growth previously and returned to 30% growth after that. So we were struggling along with everybody else to make sure we could, you know, get the revenues into the company to, you know, hiring kind of slowed to a trickle, but at least that we could keep everybody on board. We were newly public and, the one thing that happened during that period was we realized that we had not been great stewards, as good stewards for our existing customers as we could have been. We were growing so fast that the fact that we lost 10 or 15% of our customers for a variety of reasons, obviously when you're dealing with smaller companies, some of that is inevitable, but some of it was very avoidable as we learned in hindsight. And so the pressure of just trying to sort of preserve every dollar allowed us, you know, we looked under the rug and we're like, oh, we're not managing our existing customers as well as we could. We actually retooled our entire sales force to better be able to service customers once they've implemented and are going to potentially use new capabilities, but also just to make sure they're going to renew. We retooled our support. We retooled so much during that time that we stuck with even when the growth came back. And so uh, in retrospect, we saw some of the mistakes we'd made and we corrected them. And that's, I think, been, even today, we can look back at that time and say that was a huge component of our success was the course correction we did there. Sure. And I'm curious with everything going on in your life, you know, you're raising a family, you're doing all these things. Was the IPO a moment of reflection for you? Or was there any point in time where you're like, wow, I, we did it, you know, and you just pause for a moment. Yeah, and to you reflect definitely on it. pause. And we went to New York and rang the bell and it was super exciting. And right afterwards, I got to send a message to the whole company, which was, you know, something like, I said something like, I love you all or something like that. <laughs> and I was so embarrassed. And my wife was like, no, that was great. But I mean, I really, it was a time where we felt, I think we felt as a family, everybody here in California, you know, it was 6.30 a.m. They all came into the office. We had breakfast for them. And, you know, I mean, I think, one of the things we've tried to do over the years in every 
company as it grows tries to keep the essence of who they were when they started. And we were always a very family-friendly company and always sort of, I felt like a family as much as a business can. I mean, we're a very professional organization. We take what we do. I mean, we're fiduciaries for this incredibly important information for our customers. We take that incredibly seriously, but we don't necessarily take ourselves too seriously. And, you know, that moment, you know, when I said that, I kind of probably turned red when I looked at my wife. I'm like, I can't believe I just said that. But really, that was a moment when I realized that we had built more. We built a community. And, you know, people come into work every single day. And obviously, you develop friendships there. And you develop respect for people. And you learn from people. And it's an incredibly important part of your life. And I think we build business software that people sort of have to use. You have to use business software when you're running a business now. You can't possibly do it without it, you know. And so to that degree, it's a necessity. But on the flip side, it's something that people use every single day. And that is a big, you know, part of their work lives. And so when we think about how we can make it better, we do kind of try to think in that family, like we're building it for our family. And one of the things that happened when we were purchased by Oracle is that we got a question. We did a Q&A with Mark Hurd, late Mark Hurd, who was such an incredible supporter of NetSuite and so, so, so missed. But, he, you know, one of the questions was, you know, and this was from, I think, a part, a NetSuite partner, like a company that helps, you know, implement NetSuite, um, but they're not NetSuite employees. And they said, well, you know, NetSuite has this real family feel and how they treat everybody in their ecosystem. Do you think they'll be able to preserve that, you know, as part, and Oracle's note as hard charging, are they going to be able to preserve that as part of Oracle? And Mark made a funny answer. He said something like, well, I think I'm pretty nice. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, I think that whole family orientation, not only is obviously how we respect families deeply, and it's an incredibly important part of our culture. Not every, you know, everybody has a family, first of all. And family is way more important than anything else. Way more important than business software. It's way more important than everything we do. But I think looking at it that way and the chance at the IPO to sort of reflect on that, that togetherness that we felt at that time, just, you know, and it, it was a culmination of such hard work. And then, of course, the next day, fly back to California, get in the office, everything's the same. Here's some <laughs> issues, Evan, you have to deal with. And back to the grind, but a good moment of reflection for sure. So you've stayed after the acquisition by Oracle, you've stayed on. And I think that's kind of a testament to the culture remaining intact, despite being at Oracle. So you mentioned that, you know, not taking yourself too seriously, the family component, but are there any other lessons maybe you have on culture building or keeping it fun and not, you know, taking it too seriously? I think the connection of the past is incredibly important that the vision of the company has remained the same from the get go and that we can hearken back to those days above the hair salon and that what animated us is what should animate us today. And what's been interesting is being becoming part of Oracle is we've really doubled down on our core constituency, which is these fast-growing businesses that grow from startup to you know significant business with hundreds of employees. That transition, even thousands of employees, that transition, that time when you get off the initial kind of systems that you got just because you had to and go on to a real system that sort of ties everything together, that time in a company's history. That's what we've been able to refocus on. It was always our wheelhouse, but now we're just absolutely laser focused on those fast growing businesses. And so that's, I think, tied the team together even better than before. You know, most of our key contributors have stayed and I think it's a two way street. You know, we love working together, all of us. And the challenge is definitely preserving those aspects of the culture within the larger company, but also taking advantage of the larger company. And fortunately, Oracle 
you know, it's kind of publicly shown that it's undergoing a transformation and it's very aligned with how NetSuite looks at the world. It's very customer centric, very employee centric, thinking about how we can help companies, but how we can also help other organizations with the reach and the capabilities that we have. I think we've been very aligned with that transformation. So that's been exciting to see that and the kind of back and forth that we have with the larger organization as it changes. Yeah. So NetSuite's involved in social impact, obviously. And I heard that that kind of got the genesis. Was that a PTA meeting or? Well, it was my wife was, was a... president of the PTA. Okay. And she ha- casually mentioned that, boy, you know, it's hard to figure out what's going on financially because we have two copies of QuickBooks because they're at different people's houses. <laughs> and I'm like, <laughs> uh, we have a solution for that. <laughs> and so we got the PTA off of two copies of QuickBooks onto one copy of NetSuite. And it seemed to work really well. And, you know, volunteers could use it from their homes and see what was going. Everyone was playing from the same playbook. That's to matters. a large degree the animating principle of NetSuite. And so once we did that, and obviously we gave it to them for free, I was like, hmm, I bet there's a lot of other organizations that probably have sort of messy finances and yet. Certainly everyone talked about at the time, you know, maybe in the early 2000s, you heard a lot of talk about nonprofit organizations running more like businesses in terms of really understanding the ROI, being efficient with the use of donor funds. And, you know, we kind of felt like we could be part of that transformation for that, you know, industry, so to speak. And that's how we built up what we called NetSuite.org, which has transformed into Oracle NetSuite Social Impact. I mean, the core of that program started with giving away NetSuite to small charities and social enterprises, and then helping them actually implement it by having employees do pro bono work to help them succeed with the service. Because obviously you don't want to just throw it over to them and say, good luck. And it's a great program. We call it Sweet Pro Bono because we put sweet in front of everything. And it allows employees to work for great organizations that they believe in, learn more about NetSuite. I mean, the engineers are programming the software. They don't necessarily always get to see how it works in the field, so to speak. So they get to learn and get outside sort of their daily learn about NetSuite. So that's super obviously helpful for NetSuite as an organization. So the employees get a big benefit. NetSuite gets a big benefit. Obviously, we truly believe that these organizations, um, we talk about them being able to do good better when they have better visibility and control of their operations as they grow, just like a business. You know, they're not for profit, but they definitely are looking at how they're spending and and how they can be uh, most effective. For sure. And so we have a lot of CEOs, a lot of business owners or aspiring business owners that are listening to this podcast. For those that aren't familiar with NetSuite, I'm curious now, how do you pitch the company to CEOs and what are some misconceptions that you get still? Well, the basic pitch is exactly as it was when we started the company, which is basically everything you need to grow all in one place. When we built the uh, first dashboard, because we had enough of the CRM capabilities and the financial capabilities and web capabilities for people that sold in web stores to be able to actually show everything that was sort of going on in the heart of your business. And we built something called the executive dashboard. That was a real seminal moment. And still to this very day, I say, imagine just having a dashboard on your phone. It wasn't on your phone back then. But imagine having now, imagine having a dashboard on your phone that has all your critical information up-to-date and in real time about your core operations, not your financial operations, your customer relationship management, your web operations, your human resources, everything right there on your phone. You can drill down to see any of you know the information that jumps out at you that you want to learn more about. That's the pitch. Love it. 
And I'm curious to know as well, what businesses do you not see anyone starting right now? Where do you see opportunity at or uh, what spaces are you excited about? Gosh, I mean, you see more about <laughs> what businesses not to start. Obviously, we've seen some of that <laughs> lately. They're the very visible ones. Yeah, so the that. very visible ones. You know, I think we work in the world of B2B and how we think about it is just going and visiting companies. And that's where the great ideas come from is go see your users and what's bothering them, not just the challenges that they have on a day-to-day basis, but what are the opportunities that they see? And I think a lot of that is sort of vertical specific, you know, in the particular type of business that they have. So if you can start with a, and I don't know where that white space is, white space is right now, but if you can start, and I would obviously encourage you to start maybe building something off, you know, we have an ecosystem at NetSuite that allows you to build a business basically, you know, on top of NetSuite. I mean, we don't focus on every single vertical out there. We can't. We look at the big, you know, the kind of the big ones, you know, retail and industrial supply, but there's so many amazing verticals. We have a partner that builds on top of NetSuite software for breweries and it's called Burp Brewery. <laughs> and, you know, there's thousands, I mean, there's thousands of them around there's all, those, all over the those country. There's waves of like craft breweries starting yeah, everywhere. Exactly. And, yeah, they're second, everywhere. Third tier cities and, and yeah. they are just like everybody else. They want a better handle on their business. So they take NetSuite and adapt it to that. So I think that's some of the most interesting places. If you can find in a particular vertical unmet need, and then you can do a little market research, which, you know, entrepreneurs won't necessarily do, but I highly (laughs) encourage it to see that there's very similar needs in adjacent verticals and maybe in a bigger industry, but you can start by satisfying a, a use case that you understand from visiting a business or from, you know, your brothers in the business or your sisters in the business or whatever, take that and you see them, you know, and we take our team and engineers and user experience designers and we bring them out to customers to actually be at a customer site and see what they're doing, what cool business they're in, what their vision is, what their dreams are, and then how NetSuite is a part of it, see it kind of, you know, in the field. And so if you can start with that, you know, deeper understanding and empathy, I mean, it's all about empathy for users in a particular vertical or industry, and then do a little research to see whether that could apply to lots of other industries. I think for a B2B company, that's a great way to start. Evan, it sounds like you've surrounded yourself with amazing people. You've built that family, you've built a great culture and a very successful company. Congrats. I'd love to get your take on some of the biggest lessons you learned from three people you mentioned. So you talked about Larry, you talked about Mark, and you talked about Mark Hurd. And would love to start with Larry and maybe hear yeah, what well, you reflect there, on. There again have been again. a ton of lessons, but I'll tell you the one that I take with me to work every single day is that you need to know what your differentiator is. And that has to be the core of what you enhance and build every day. You may have to catch up to competitors and sprint to catch up to competitors in certain areas, but you need to maintain an enormous lead in what you're better than everybody else at. And keeping the focus on that, and that's certainly what we try to do every day at NetSuite, that's sort of the biggest advice I'd give to every entrepreneur. You can get so distracted. And we talked about the big deal. That can distract you away from your differentiator because they may ask for something that is a checkbox item. And okay, maybe you do it, but just be very, very aware that that's getting you off track and that instead you should be maintaining your lead. And one of the things for a software company, and this is really true for any kind of product company or any service, 
if you look at your list of enhancements that you want to do and they have customer names next to them, you may be getting way off track and you may be not focusing on your differentiator and you may not be keeping that big, big lead over your competitors. And ultimately that's what sells. And that's really what gets people to love you because this is something that they've never seen before and they've never had before. And it's remarkable and they'll forgive other things that you're missing. But if you give them something extraordinary that they didn't even really imagine could be possible. And I mean, at the advent of NetSuite way back in the day, obviously our big differentiator initially was that we were on the web. And then we added a second one was that everything worked together as a suite. And those are the things that when we talk to customers and we still to this very day, the most excited customers I meet at Suite World, which is our user conference, now it has 10,000 customers that come. The ones that are most excited to me are the ones that come up and say, you know what, we had like five different systems before. I didn't even imagine that there was something like NetSuite out there that could allow us to simplify down to, you know, one or two or, you know. Right. And, you know, because they have honed in on what is the sort of true differentiator. We don't hear as many people saying, I'm so excited I can work from home now. I mean, that's <laughs> kind of taken for granted. But the other big core of our idea, which was the suite, still really resonates. And so we go back, we hear that, we take that back to focus more on making the suite better, which is our true differentiator. Sure. And when it comes to Mark Benioff, who's a friend of yours, what's something you've learned from Mark over the years? Make sure everybody knows what you're doing. <laughs> <laughs> He's really good at that. Love it. And what about Mark Hurd too? He's you know, tra yeah. tragic passing recently. Uh, you know, I didn't get to know and work with him as much as I would have liked to. You know, I'm a child of the 70s. I love 70s music. He loved 70s music. I didn't learn this until his memorial service. I wish we'd gotten to talk about 70s music. We could have gone deep there. But, you know, professionally, he just had a tremendous focus on the customer and the customer relationship. And that encompassed more than just the service. I mean, he understood, obviously, the importance of delivering a great service, but he also understood when you saw him with a customer, his ability to listen and then hone in on what really was troubling or where they really saw opportunity and what we had to do for them was remarkable. So in my you know short time that I got to work with him, I hope I get to take that away. And when I'm you know working with our customers that I can have that sort of same kind of empathy and perceptiveness. Okay. So yeah, moving forward here, before the mics turned on, we were talking about some books you were reading. We mentioned the idea factory, I think anything else you're reading or when you unplug a little bit or looking for wisdom, where are you seeking it at? Yeah. Well, I, you know, I, I read a lot of books. I love fiction and, but, uh, the, you know, the interesting thing about that book, the idea factory is that they, you know, that was a time of sort of, it seemed like endless possibility there were times before the advent of the internet when people felt like there was endless possibility. And, you know, that Ma Bell, AT&T, their vision was connecting every human to every other human. Have you heard that before? <laughs> and so just that different era, but also seeing the endless possibility they saw and how they tried to capitalize on that with innovation. I mean, you know, in Silicon Valley, where, you know, I've been for several decades, let's say, you know, that's always what you're thinking about is innovating and, you know, seeing how that was done back in the day. And they had some incredible, incredible innovations at Bell Labs is an interesting, interesting comparison. I mean, I'm sure it goes back 
you know, we say this is the great age, internet's the great age of innovation. I'm sure you can go back, obviously, to the Industrial Revolution, et cetera. And, and it's that same excitement about the possibilities. I mean, now people are seeing it with AI, maybe with a little more trepidation. I don't think there was a lot of trepidation with the invention of the transistor, as there may be with the invention <laughs> of uh, artificial intelligence. Of uh, in potential alien intelligence. Um, you mentioned fiction. We got to geek out about that a little bit first. So what type of fiction are you reading? Sci-fi? Uh, um, yeah, I, you know, read some sci-fi, love Neil Stevenson, but read most of his Red works. Fall yet? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It was pretty, cool. Pretty I crazy. had several 3am, regretful 3am <laughs> reading sessions where my wife is rolling her eyes because, you know, when I have to get up at seven, I'm exhausted. <laughs> Why did you stay up reading? Well, any other uh, classic author, Werner Vinge or anyone that you um, like? You know, I started, you know, my reading career, reading fantasy and J.R.R. Tolkien, sure. massive fan, and George R.R. Martin. And so, you know, I always, I come back to that genre occasionally, but I like to read all different kinds of books. I love, you know, thrillers. I find going into a bookstore extremely difficult because it's just sensory overload. I, sometimes I'm like, can we just have a moratorium on writing <laughs> books for like two years? And then I can catch up. There won't be any new books and I'll just methodically go through and then they, everyone can start writing again. Yeah, really. Evan, thanks so much for being generous with your time. If there was one final takeaway you would leave for everyone listening, maybe a call to action, inspirational, what would it be? Well, I think it's a thread that's run through it. But when I talk to entrepreneurs, the number one thing I say is to stay true to that vision, that North Star, and every decision you make, think about, does this get me closer? Even if it's not quite on track, does it get me closer? And keeping that in mind with everything you do, I think is a key component of success. I love it. Evan, thanks for your time. Thanks for having me. As a small business owner in ultra-competitive Silicon Valley, I used to worry about losing my top talent. I don't anymore, and here's why. I figured out how to offer access to robust benefits like a big company does, but I couldn't do it on my own. That's where Trinet came in. Trinet helps tens of thousands of businesses across the U.S. with HR. They provide you top-notch industry-tailored services for your HR needs. If you're building a business, you know you need a great team. Trinet is your team for HR. And when you choose Trinet, you'll help support independent media like Mission Daily. Thanks for listening. Hey, listeners, thanks for tuning into this episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. It helps spread the word, and I would greatly appreciate it. See you next time.